Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or short story are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own. Today, I'm very excited that we get to hear from the marvelous writer, Frances DePuante's Peoples, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, The Air You Breathe, which, by the way, Oprah Magazine claimed had the echoes of Elena Ferrante, and the NPR reviewer said that she sat up and read the book in two nights, and she said, one might say, I inhaled it. Good morning, Frances. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Frances DePuante's Peebles is the author of the novels The Seamstress and The Air You Breathe. She is a creative writing fellow in literature for 2020 from the National Endowment for the Arts. Her book, her books have been translated into 10 languages and won the L. Grand Prix for Fiction, the Friends of American Writers Award, and the James Michener Copernicus Society of American Fellowship. Born in Pernambuco, Brazil. I knew I was going to crush it. You got it. You got it. You should say it because I bet it's a beautiful name of a city. Pernambuco. Yes, that's better. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Her novel, The Seamstress, was adapted for film and miniseries on Brazil's global network, which is amazing. She's proud to serve as chair of the board of the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights. In spring 2019, she also served as visiting associate professor of fiction at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Okay. Wonderful. Let's hear an overview of the book, and then that will help us when we uh, approach these first pages. Okay. Um, yeah. So the air you breathe is about a complex, like female friendship and love story, and essentially, it's about two girls who grow up in very with very different backgrounds in the same um, sugar plantation in the '30s in Brazil. And one is like the daughter of the plantation owner and one is a servant. And they run away together. They both wanna be radio stars. They wanna be samba singers. And they run away together to Rio de Janeiro. And essentially they have a long trajectory together where one becomes the star similar to and based on Carmen Miranda um, and is exported to the United States. And the other is the creative force behind this star who writes all the songs and kind of lives in the shadows. And their journey to the United States kind of um, creates a, a split in their, in their friendship. And it's about music and art and love and kind of how each kind of deals with the attention that is given to them or not given to them and kind of the perils of making art. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, let's hear it. And everyone, you can also follow along if you wish. The link to the pages is in the podcast notes. Okay, go ahead. All right. Time is short and the water is rising. This is what one of Sofia Salvador's directors, I can't recall his name, used to shout before he'd start filming. Each time he said it, I imagined all of us in a fishbowl, our hands sliding frantically along the glass sides as water crept above our necks our noses, our eyes. I fall asleep listening to our old records and I wake with my mouth dry, my tongue as rough as a cat's. I pull the handle of my lazy boy and with a jolt, I'm sitting upright. A pile of photos rests in my lap. 
I own the most famous photograph of Sofia Salvador, the Brazilian bombshell, the fruity cutie girl, the fast talking, eye popping nymph with her glittering costumes and pixie cut hair who, depending on your age and nationality, is a joke, an icon of camp, a victim, a traitor, a great innovator, or even as one researcher anointed her, an object of serious study of Hollywood Latinas. Is that what they're calling us now? I bought the original photo and it's negative at auction, paying much more than they were worth. Money isn't an issue for me these days. I'm filthy rich and not ashamed to say so. When I was young, musicians had to pretend that success and money didn't matter. Ambition in a sambista, and especially in a woman, was seen as an unforgivable fault. The photo taken in the photo taken in 1942, Sofia Salvador wears the pixie cut she made famous. Her eyes are wide, her lips are parted, her tongue flicks the roof of her mouth. It's unclear if she's singing or screaming. Earrings made to resemble life-sized hummingbirds, their jeweled eyes glinting, their golden beaks sharp, dangle from her ears. She was vain about her lobes, worried they would sag under the weight of her array of earrings, each pair more fantastical than the next. She was vain about everything, really. She had to be. In the photograph, she wears a gold choker wrapped twice around her neck. Below is strand upon strand of fake pearls, each one as large as an eyeball. Then there are the bracelets, bands of coral and gold taking up most of her forearms. At the end of each day, when I'd take those necklaces and bracelets off of her, and she stopped being Sofia Salvador, for a moment at least, Grasa flapped her arms and said, I feel so light, I could fly away. Grasa drew Sofia's dark eyebrows arched, so high she always looked surprised. The mouth, that famous red mouth, was what took her the longest to produce. She lined beyond her lips so that like everything else, they were an exaggeration of the real thing. Who was the real thing? By the end of her short life, even Grasa had trouble answering this question. The picture was taken for Life magazine. The photographer stood Grasa against a white backdrop. Pretend you're singing, he ordered. Why pretend, Grasa replied. I thought that's all you knew how to do, the photographer shot back. He believed his fame gave him the right to be nasty. Grasa stared. She was very tired. We always were, even me, who signed Sofia Salvador's name to hundreds of glossy photos, while Grasa and the Blue Moon Boys endured 18-hour days of filming, costume fittings, screen tests, dance rehearsals, and publicity shoots for whatever her latest movie musical was. It could have been worse. We could have been starving, like in the old days. But at least in the old days, we played real music together. Then I will pretend to respect you, Grasa said to that fool photographer. Then she opened her mouth and sang. People remember the haircut, the enormous earrings, the sequined skirts, the accent, but they forget her voice. When she sang for that photographer, his camera nearly fell from his hands. I listened to her records, only our early recordings, when she sang Vinicius in my songs, and it's as if she's still 17 and sitting beside me. Grasa, with all of her willfulness, her humor, her petty resistances, her pluck, her complete selfishness. This is how I want her, if only for the span of a three-minute song. When the song ends, I'm exhausted and whimpering. I imagine her here nudging me, bringing me back to my senses. Why the hell are you upset, Dole? Grasa chides. At least you're still around. 
Her voice is so clear, I have to remind myself she isn't real. I've known Grasa longer in my imagination than in real life. Who wants real life? Grasa asks, laughing at me. She's always laughing at someone. I shake my head. After all this time, 95 years to be exact, I still don't know the answer. Wonderful. Absolutely gorgeous. I just love Thank you. getting here. And there's, <clears throat> you are introducing so much in such a condensed space. Yeah. Um, so was this always where you started the novel and how you started the novel? No. So I'm a firm believer of in a first draft, you just kind of get everything out onto the page in whatever order it comes in. And so when that happened in my first draft, I started when they were children. Mm -hmm. So I started with them on the sugar plantation that Grasa's father owned and Do as like a, a foundling essentially that works in the kitchen. And um, so it started there. But as I wrote different drafts, I realized that I needed to start to give context to the entire story of their going to the United States, of Sofia Salvador's fame, of how Grasa was kind of split into two people, the original and the star, kind of Grasa and Sofia Salvador, and that Do lives a very long life, that Doris, Maria das Doris, who's the other main character, um, lives until she's 95 and is reflecting back. And so, as all of us writers know, the beginning of a novel has to have a lot of information packed into it. Um, and it can be really intimidating. And the way that I like to think of it to lessen my intimidation is what questions am I asking? What, what, am I, what expectations am I giving to the reader? And how do I meet them throughout the book? So the beginning is a chance for me to kind of set expectations and ask questions or to plant, I should say, not, I'm not asking the questions, I'm planting the seeds of questions in the reader's mind. And so I had to kind of make a list of like, okay, well, what questions do I want the reader to ask? Because those questions are going to drive them forward. That curiosity is really going to drive them forward and keep reading. Whereas if I started on the plantation with kind of the minutia of sugar and producing sugar, it would feel like a different book. It would feel like a book about a sugar plantation. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted kind of the larger scope of the entertainment and the music. It really was about the music, because Doris is the songwriter and Grasa is the, the interpreter of those songs. Um, you know what's interesting? So Francis and I were talking uh, before we started that we both love to tell stories from the point of view of, of older women, old women. Um, and so you've got, you've got a 95-year-old narrator here looking back. And I think I think what's interesting, and I oftentimes will tell my students to try this too, to think of, and, and maybe not even to, as a way to, to figure out what information they would put in their first pages, but simply when your narrator, or when your character is several decades older than they are as a character in the novel now, what are they going to think back to? What's, yeah. going, to, what's going to rise up? Yeah. Um, yeah. What are they going to think of themselves? And that kind of forces you to remember 
this was important, this was important, this wasn't important. These are the ma major turning points. These are the major images, the major flashes. And so that is kind of the gift that you're giving us here is that because she is older, she's able to give us this wonderful run of images and even kind of partial very um, fast scenes uh, of, of Sofia and Gracia um, so that we get really and that's it feels like that's how you're able to condense it in a way um it just it just and then the first line time is short and the water is rising now when did you get to that i had written that so i keep notebooks where i handwrite things because for me when i start typing it feels very formal and it's like this will be in the book and most of it is not in the book but i keep kind of hand written notebooks for each character and this phrase just kept coming up in the notebook. And I knew that it would be something that, um, that Do would say. And I just, for some reason, when I went back, because for me, I write the beginning last. Yeah. Because that, again, it's like about expectations. And what am I setting up for the reader and also for the story? How do I encapsulate the story in the first couple pages so that people wanna keep reading, but also so that I'm kind of creating momentum for the story. Um, and I, this first line came from the fact of she's about to die. Like, because her voice comes up, the 95 year old voice kind of enters, she's mostly in memory but she comes back to us and you really know she's kind of at the last stages of her life. And so for her time is short and um, she really does need to get this story out. And at the end of this particular section, which is only five pages, it's pretty short. Um, she says, I need to remember this, like one of my songs and I'm going to sing it from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like she's composing this last song. This is the last song of her life, which is, this story of the two of them and kind of reconciling what happened. Um, and I had a lot of readers actually complain that I revealed that Grasa passed away young, like on the you know second page and that I shouldn't have made this revelation. And I do agree that writers, there's some things that I want to go back in time and change in every book. But for me, that was important that that revelation of her, dying young. We don't know how, we don't know when, but it was important that she's lived longer in Doris's imagination than in real life. Because to me, it shows how much Doris has like kept her with, how, how much of a mark. I mean, it's the love of her life. Grasa is the love of her life. And mm -hmm. so to me, it's like giving these hints, these breadcrumbs, like, wow, you would remember this person. You're 95 and you still look at her photo every night. Um, and so it was important to give, to me, that wasn't giving anything important away. It was actually adding texture to the story. And mm -hmm. so it was a conscious choice to reveal that. I agree. I, I think it works so, so well. And this is something else to, um, for writers to think about. It's kind of nice when we get these complaints or we or these questions from readers before yeah. Published so that when you're standing at the podium and and you know 
someone in the back row says, why did you do this? Da, 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 that you actually have a ready answer um, and that the answer actually fulfills, you know, fulfills and deepens more what the audience's understanding of the book is. I mean, um, here, the, these opening pages are full of so much yearning and nostalgia. Um, and it feels an old yearning and nostalgia. And it just makes us lean into the pages that there is something important here um, that we're being given. And she's, it's almost like she's, she's, you know, using a rope to, to pull us in. I, I feel completely pulled in here. Also, writers, it's, it's about what do you withhold and what do you not withhold? Yes. And sometimes, lots of times writers withhold too much because they think, oh, I'm just going to drop this in later and it'll be a surprise. But I, I agree with you that telling us that Gracia dies early then just raises more questions about the how and when. And so then we're reading to understand, um, and we know that it's coming. Yeah. Uh, know that the water is rising. We know that time is short. So that is that's for both characters. And so we're for reading for that as well. I think I think it works very, very well in terms of turning the pages. And, you know, sometimes sometimes readers, I think, complain about things. But then when we give it to them, they're like, oh, I actually like the other way better. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a professor that says that said writing is the art of making decisions. And I you speak very eloquently about choices and it's true. Everything is a choice when we are writing and sometimes we have to make hard choices and sometimes we can regret those choices later, but then we, in a new book and another book, we make, you know, a different choice. We're able to kind of write a different book with different choices. Um, but yeah, I think that the first pages require a different kind of decision-making than like the middle or the end of the book because then you're kind of, you've unspooled everything. You have very little thread left at the end of the book. But the beginning is like, you have to give people a sense of what to expect. And so you do have to make really hard decisions. Um, something I'm working on right now, I had to rewrite the beginning because I tried to cram too much information in the beginning. And I was almost like, okay, here it all is so that you understand so that then I can tell the real story. And then I came back and I was like, this is so boring. Like I should just get to the real story. And then kind of uh, as Ursula um, uh, Legin says, kind of compost in the information right. and kind of scatter it in. And so that was a learning point and a decision-making point for me. Um, but yeah, with this one, it was like, it felt overwhelming because I had to include a lot of information in a short time span as well. So it was like, how to include ideas about the fame, the women's fame, um, that, you know, how to include ideas about her wealth, how to include, you know, the ideas that they, um, that there's some kind of peril awaiting them, that they were poor and then they got wealthy, that Hollywood wasn't what it seemed and in what way. And so it was like, I couldn't describe Hollywood completely in those first pages, but I wanted to give a little taste so that the reader understands that there's great shifts and movement in the in the book. Yeah, is the one that you're working on now, is it third person or first? Um, it is a combination. So it's multiple voices in different, um, mm. uh, different points of view. Yeah. Does, it, does it open in third or first? Uh, Right now, it opens in um, 
in uh, we kind of like uh, the collective, <laughs> but that might change. That might change. Right, right, right. <laughs> Again, the reason why I'm asking, I tend to do this is ask questions because I want to particular. I was just curious because because I think the first person here in the air you breathe grants again a certain selection of mm-hmm. memories that become important that might be difficult to do otherwise you know and, and and in practical terms you know we're always looking for the clock of a book and we're always looking for danger of the book right from the get-go mm-hmm. and that line that first line in the most lovely subtle way possible is giving us both of those time is short the water is rising it just works in, in so many ways we also get so we there's a lot of focus on Sophia's image. We get mm-hmm. a photograph first and we get this wonderful list of, you know, I own the most famous photograph of Sophia Salvador, um, the Brazilian bombshell, the fruity cutie girl, this huge list of all the naming and 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 ways and 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 labels that people are putting and have put on that photograph. Um, and then in the paragraph after that, we get more Dora's uh, way of seeing the photograph. So it's just kind of a wonderful split there. And she's even questioning, you know, Hollywood's Latinas, is that what they're calling us now? Um, but we have, you know, she's, I fall asleep to her old records. I own the most famous photograph in the photo. So it's almost like we're just tunneling into this experience in a lovely way. And yet Thank we you. still get we still get Dora in a very simple sentence. So it's all focused, almost entirely focused on, on Gracia, right? And then we slowly mm-hmm. get Dora's in, but we get this wonderful sentence. Money isn't an issue for me these days. I'm filthy rich and not an, I'm not afraid to shape, not ashamed to say so. There's so much of Dora's in that sentence. Yeah. Um, no, okay, she hasn't always had money. Um, yeah. It tells us that, and we're going to learn about that change over the course of the novel, and also that she's just completely herself and doesn't dare care. Yeah. <laughs> just, and so we're going to get this story straight out. Um, it, it just works so well in a very, very simple line. And then all of these layers of things about what is real and what is not real. Um, now, did you, um, you said you, you always come, you always come back and write your first pages after you've written the whole book. Did you know that I need to hit this theme, um, in my first pages? Cause it's, it's throughout or did it just come naturally? It probably came naturally at that point. Cause you had written the full draft. I mean, I never, I think by the end, I, 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 I think more about, I, I don't really think thematically, or maybe it's like an, a subconsciously, you know? Um, I do think that the first draft, you have to use language so efficiently, it has to be like an arrow hitting its mark. So each sentence has to have a deeper kind of more layered meaning because the reader is getting information, um, both upfront, but also kind of, uh, there's layers of information that the reader might not even be thinking about, because hopefully they're kind of gobbling down these first pages. Um, but I was concerned about the lists, you know, is it too much? Is it too many, but I think that I did that because I needed to show her level of fame, um, Mm -hmm. that it, it rose and then it fell. And so, and then it became more academic. So it was like, she was really famous and then she was a joke. And then in a more academic way, she's being studied again. And also who is the real Gasa? 
And we want to get to know that from her, her, I want to say best friend, lover, her, her everything from, from Doris, right? Um, and also understand that this is a first person point of view. We don't get Gracia's point of view. So the story is skewed in that way. We never will get her point of view. We get a ghost. And so again, it's like that layer of who is real and who is not real. Um, and I think Doris herself throughout the book struggles with that as Grasa has to kind of create a mask for herself in the United States and is made fun of and kind of like, so Carmen Miranda's story is a similar trajectory where she was this amazing singer, really, really talented. And she came to the United States. And if you watch her films, she's a, she's a comedian and she was never a comedian in Brazil. And it's almost like, is she the joke or is she part of the joke? And it's like this crazy campy um, look that ultimately for Carmen Miranda and for Graça led to her demise. You know, there was addiction, there was a lot of other things happening. And um, Graça has somebody that Carmen Miranda didn't have, which is Doris, but it, it affects all, them all. It affects the band, it affects Doris. And a lot of that is just, um, I wanted to hint at that in like the Hollywood Latinas, because it's like, is that what they're calling us now? Meaning they called us very different things, meaner things when we right. actually lived there. Right. So I do think, I think lists can be very dangerous, but yours are, yours are more like riffs. They're like musical riffs. Um, there's so much energy to it. There's so much interesting language to it. Um, and I, I just, I think they work very well. You know, I interviewed another writer, uh, Sarah Johnson Allen, and her book is Down Here We Come Up. Um, and her book is a is takes place in the South. I mean, it's a completely, otherwise it has a completely different pace, a, a completely different sensibility, but she also uses a lot of lists and she's got that, that poet's ear. Um, she, she's hearing what it, how it hits. It's not just information. Um, mm -hmm. So I think yours is, are working very well. And then this split of personality, when I read that sentence, so Grasa drew Sophia's dark eyebrows arched so high, she always looked surprised. And and I actually, it, it took, it caught me a little bit, but then I was like, oh, she's talking about her own eyebrows, but she's so split. Yeah, as a character. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, it captures it perfectly, but it's also very sad. Yeah. Uh, she really is putting on a mask. Um, and that continues, you know, the photographer, you have this great little short scene in which the photographer um, says, tells her to pretend you're singing. Another thing, folks, that you want to look at is the way that Francis works in um, dialogue, short blips of dialogue in these kind of quick memories. And it's a way to wake up the the prose, not that yours really needs to be woken up, but it can help that kind of pacing and the yeah. Um Oh my God. And then we get to when the song ends, I'm exhausted and whimpering. I imagine her here nudging me, bringing me back to my senses. There's, I, I will follow Doris wherever she wants to take me there. Um, oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. So much. I kind of fell in love with her while I was writing it. Yes. <laughs> Just because yes. she's a complicated person. You know, I, I received a lot of um, comments about how people loved them both and also hated them. They're not yeah. that they weren't, and I'm using quotes here, likable. And I actually had a whole, um, this was during the pandemic and I didn't get to do it, but we had a panel set up for AWP about 
what may, like, why do we need likable female characters? We don't, <laughs> they don't have to be likable. Women, you know, are forced to be likable in life and gosh, now we force them to be likable in fiction. And so I really um, struggle to understand that because I think that they're both really ambitious at times during the book, really selfish, can be cruel, can be loving. Um, in, in short, they're human beings. And so, um, you know, Doris has her flaws and Grasa has her many, many flaws. Um, but in the end, it's uh, about their kind of mark and effect on each other. Yeah, yeah. And then you also allow Gracia to speak directly to Doris. Why the hell are you upset, Dor? At least you're still around. Do you do that throughout the book? Or is it only in the opening here? Um, this is gonna. I this is gonna sound terrible, but I can't remember. Um, in that, <laughs> I know. I so think that's normal. I I have, <laughs> so I've been doing a number of these interviews, and people can't remember. Not only can they not remember their own books, which I think is completely normal, because it's almost like having a baby, and you don't remember yeah. all. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't remember the process and sometimes you don't even remember what it contains so I think it's fine um, but it's an interesting it's another way to get the dialogue in right and to wake yes. think of the pacing yeah um, did you and again did you always have that in your first go through this or did it was was grasses speaking and you couldn't shut her up yeah kind of because I think her ghost voice comes through in many ways so the book has like little sections of of 95 year old Doris kind of before each memory and each chapter is like a, a memory and it goes chronological. It starts when they're children and it ends kind of when they're ending their careers, right? And so she, Doris always gives us a prelude to this. So there's a pattern to the book so that the reader can count on and understand kind of where they're at in time. And I think I, if I'm remembering correctly in these preludes, we do get Grasa, but it's we start to realize hopefully that it's Doris's version of Grasa, right? It's the ghost that's coming through. Um, but I wanted to give her energy and her vivacity and personality um, with this kind of ghost voice, which is why it's in italics and also just like really punch it through with like, oh, this is Grasa, you know, yeah. and, and get her really alive on the page. Yeah, wonderful. And and so also your use of the reminiscent narrator then and, and figuring out when to allow the, the older narrator to enter the text, basically, mm -hmm. and not. And so it sounds like you found a kind of structure for that um, that I think would be really useful because I, I work with a lot of writers and they don't, they're like, well, when do, how often do I let the reminiscent narrator in or how often not? So I always yeah. tell them, look through books that do it well. And so this is one of them, folks. You can look at this. All right, Francis, I'm going to have to let you go. We're going to have to shut up. We have to get to these people. <laughs> these people have to get some writing done. Um, everyone, go get writing. Go get writing. Um, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com and you can subscribe there for updates to our schedule. You can also find the full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did two enormous challenges um, so you might want to go back. There's a lot of information in all of those episodes, and you can also find them on your favorite podcast platforms. All right, Francis, one last question. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? I would say uh, kind of what we were talking about before, like think about 
the expectations, the seeds that you're planting for the reader? What seeds do you want to plant in the beginning of the, the book that are going to grow throughout the book? And how are you going to meet those expectations? Because if you do plant them, like you have to, you have to grow them, you have to meet them. So are there, are there any things there that you can take out that expectations that you didn't meet um, so that you don't disappoint the reader? And yeah, kind of what are you, what seeds are you planting that will grow throughout the book? And no, and no dead seeds. Yes, no, no dead seeds. <laughs> Not allowed. We All right. Because <laughs> then you have a dead beginning. Okay, right. thank you so much, Francis, for being with us. I think you should just grab this book and eat it up. Um, I think there's so much to learn from, and then just to dream, it's just a dreamy read. Um, so, and uh, uh, have a fabulous writing day. And, Francis, I hope you have a wonderful day yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much.